Welcome to the Royal College of Physicians Edinburgh Clinical Conversations podcast. Each episode within this podcast series, we delve into a different medical topic with an expert speaker to join us. If you want to find more about the Royal College, then please do head over to the RCPE website and have a look at the education stream and see if membership would work for you. It offers a host of educational updates and activities such as the evening medical updates, the Royal College Symposia and many more. Please don't forget if you listen to our podcast to give us a rating on one of the podcast platforms or subscribe so that it can come directly into your podcast stream. Hello everyone and welcome to this episode of Clinical Conversations run by the Trainees and Members Committee at the Royal College of Physicians of Edinburgh. I'm Libby Sampi and today I'm delighted to speak with Dr. Katrina Kyle about adrenal insufficiency and steroid replacement. Dr. Kyle is a consultant endocrinologist at the Western General Hospital in Edinburgh and she has a PhD in steroid physiology from the University of Edinburgh. Welcome Dr. Kyle. Hi there. Thank you so much for coming today. So I thought we could just open up with one of the main questions I suppose. What is adrenal insufficiency and what signs and symptoms suggest adrenal insufficiency? Adrenal insufficiency is a term used to describe a condition of cortisol deficiency which is the inability of the adrenal cortex to produce a sufficient amount of the glucocorticoid cortisol. Glucocorticoids are extremely important hormones in lots of bodily functions. It has major effects on the carbohydrate, protein and lipid metabolism and is very important in energy storage and conservation as well as modulating the immune response. So it's a hugely important hormone and it can be extremely serious if you're deficient in it. Now, adrenal insufficiency and hypoadrenalism are general terms used to describe this deficiency. But in endocrinology, we're always quite keen to be a bit more specific about where the issue is. Lots of conditions can cause cortisol deficiency, but we always want to define where the problem is. And to do this, we need to think back to how cortisol is produced in the first place. And so we have to go back to physiology for that and thinking about the hypothalamus, the pituitary and the adrenal gland and how they work together in the HPA axis. So the hypothalamus produces the hormone CRH, which stimulates the pituitary to produce ACTH. And that in turn stimulates the adrenal gland to produce cortisol. And then this is a negative feedback loop where the hypothalamus then senses the amount of cortisol in the bloodstream and that regulates how much CRH and thus ACTH is produced. And it's a very tightly controlled system which peaks classically first thing in the morning in a diurnal variation and wanes as the day goes on. And so when we talk about problems within this axis, if you have disease of the adrenal gland, you have primary adrenal insufficiency. If you have disease of the pituitary gland, it's secondary adrenal insufficiency and probably more rarely hypothalamic disease results in tertiary adrenal insufficiency. So then if we think about what signs and symptoms you can get with adrenal insufficiency, they are quite varied and it really depends on the cause of your adrenal insufficiency and where in the access you have the insult. For example, 
One of the most common causes of primary adrenal insufficiency is Addison's disease, and that's an autoimmune process which tends to be a fairly subacute, slow onset with a gradual decline in cortisol. And that can present with fairly non specific symptoms such as severe fatigue, muscle weakness, nausea, vomiting, weight loss, postural hypotension. Whereas conditions within the pituitary gland, for example, big pituitary macroadenomas can bleed and that can lead to something called pituitary apoplexy and that can present very differently with acute onset headache, cranial nerve deficits and visual field defects and that can lead to a more acute presentation where there can be circulatory collapse with hyponatremia, hyperkalemia and hypoglycemia. And equally, the more subacute presentations can eventually result in that if somebody has an intercurrent illness and they don't have that cortisol response to fight off that illness. There are some more pathognomic signs that you can see, particularly with primary adrenal insufficiency, and classically you see hyperpigmentation within palmar creases and mucosa and scars, and that's because of a buildup of ACTH where the pituitary is really pumping out lots of ACTH trying to get the adrenal gland to work. And if it's not responding, you end up with very high ACTH level and a low cortisol. And that ACTH is seen in this hyperpigmentation and you don't see that in secondary or tertiary hypoadrenalism. Yeah, absolutely. And it's important to know those subtle signs and symptoms, but also those crucial ones when someone's coming in with a crisis. You've touched a little bit on some of the potential areas and causes of adrenal insufficiency. I wondered if you could go into a bit more depth regarding what causes it. The causes of adrenal insufficiency are many and varied. So I think if we talk about this, we really have to go back to our structure of primary, secondary and tertiary and start at the beginning. So primary adrenal insufficiency was first described back in 1855 by Thomas Addison. And in his day, tuberculosis was the most common cause of primary adrenal disease. Whereas now, certainly in the UK and Scotland, adrenal autoimmune destruction of the adrenal cortex is the most common cause. This is something that you should think about if you've got a patient with other common autoimmune conditions, such as type 1 diabetes, thyroid disease, celiac disease and vitiligo. And these conditions all sit together and we kind of group them together in conditions called autoimmune polyglandular syndrome. Moving on to the less common causes of primary adrenal insufficiency, infections, as I mentioned, tuberculosis was very common uh, a couple of centuries ago, and nowadays HIV and AIDS can cause a similar sort of picture. Hemorrhage within the adrenal gland is something that you can see, particularly if you have somebody on anticoagulants or they have a bleeding disorder. Sometimes infarction with clotting disorders such as lupus. And there is a condition called Waterhouse-Friedrichsen syndrome, which is a condition of sepsis, which leads to adrenal hemorrhage. So that's always something to think about in a patient who is in circulatory collapse and is not responding to anisotropes, for example. You can get metastatic disease in the adrenal glands and the most common cancers would be lung, breast and colon. Then there's the infiltrative conditions such as hemochromatosis and amyloid. And then iatrogenic causes such as surgery. There are drugs 
which interfere with cortisol production and anaesthetic agents such as atomidate is an important one to remember. Ketoconazole and metyrapone are medications that we use to manage Cushing syndrome, which is a condition of overproduction of cortisol. We use that to control that, but you can conversely then end up making somebody adrenally insufficient. So we often have to give adrenal glucocorticoid replacement therapy while they're on those sorts of medications. Then we have genetic conditions, and the most common would be congenital adrenal hyperplasia, which is a defect within the steroidogenesis pathway. The most common cause being 21 hydroxylase deficiency, which leads to cortisol and aldosterone deficiency and excess androgen production. So that is the most common cause of primary adrenal insufficiency in children. Then if we move on to pituitary disease, this can be structural due to adenomas within the pituitary. These can grow quite large and as I mentioned before, if there's bleeding within it, this can lead to pituitary apoplexy and the loss of all the pituitary hormones. There are infiltrative diseases, as I mentioned, sarcoid, metastatic disease, and you can get iatrogenic causes if somebody's had pituitary surgery or irradiation for an adenoma. And even if they've had overproduction of certain pituitary hormones, you can end up becoming hypoadrenal as a result of the treatment. For hypothalamic disease or tertiary adrenal insufficiency, this can occur with things like traumatic brain injury or treatments as a result of treatments for childhood brain cancers. For example, when whole body radiation was used, certainly in the past. Finally, another important thing to remember is drugs. And the most common drug that would interfere with your HPA axis is the use of high-dose steroids or any type of high-dose glucocorticoid therapy, which is used by lots of different specialties in the form of prednisolone, dexamethasone, hydrocortisone. And whenever you give somebody high-dose steroids, your HPA axis senses the high levels of steroid and as a result turns off its own production because it can sense that you've got plenty of steroid around. That's why it's very dangerous to suddenly withdraw high-dose steroids because the HPA axis won't have time to get back up to speed and start working again. So that is a reasonably common cause of adrenal insufficiency and it tends to be pituitary-driven due to suppression of the CRH and ACTH drive. Some high-dose opiates can lead to pituitary and hypothalamic suppression, and more recently we've been seeing reactions to immunotherapy drugs, such as pembrolizumab, which are used in treatment for melanoma, and that can cause a kind of hypophysitis inflammatory response within the pituitary gland and can lead to pituitary disease. So there are a wide range of causes of adrenal insufficiency and you just have to consider your patient and what other conditions they have to kind of put together why you think somebody's adrenal gland might not be working properly and work from there. Absolutely. That's a really good introduction as to when to suspect adrenal insufficiency. If someone is suspecting adrenal insufficiency, you've already mentioned checking electrolytes and glucose and things like this, but how else would you go about investigating it in someone? So again, it 
very much depends on the situation. If you've got a patient in front of you who has circulatory collapse that you can't explain in any other way and they are acutely unwell and they're hypotensive, tachycardic and, and you're worried. If you suspect it clinically as a result of any of these risk factors that we've discussed, then you're kind of better to treat and add on a random cortisol to what bloods that you presumably have already taken already. So that's a kind of separate side issue and the investigations can be done at a later date. But ideally, when we're trying to investigate for adrenal insufficiency, the mainstay of investigating is checking the cortisol. And there's often uncertainty about when you can check a cortisol and how helpful checking a random cortisol is. And I suppose the answer is you can do it, but you have to interpret it with the timing of the sample and the situation in mind. So if you've got somebody who you think, well, you know, it doesn't all add up, maybe we should think about adrenal insufficiency, by all means check a cortisol. Ideally, a morning cortisol makes more sense because of the natural way that cortisol is produced. It peaks normally in the morning, so that's when you would expect to have a higher reading. If you're checking a cortisol at seven o'clock in the evening or midnight, you know, you can get quite low cortisols and that doesn't necessarily mean that they're adrenally insufficient. That might just be normal. And I suppose counter to that, if you think somebody's adrenally insufficient and you get a cortisol of 500 at midnight, that seems very unlikely that they're going to have adrenal insufficiency. So a random cortisol can be helpful. Ideally, a morning cortisol would be the next best thing. And some of my colleagues in Lothian have done some work at looking at what the next step from a morning cortisol is and a cutoff for when somebody needs the next step investigation. And our working cutoff is about 275 for a morning cortisol. If it's less than that, you probably need to think a bit more and do a next test. And the gold standard for testing for adrenal insufficiency is a short synaxin test. And that's doing a baseline cortisol, giving synaxin, which is synthetic ACTH, 250 micrograms and checking your cortisol again 30 minutes later. And that is very much what we use to diagnose adrenal insufficiency. Again, we have a cutoff for the stimulated cortisol, which will vary to some extent, hospital to hospital and health board to health board. It is a very useful test. Sometimes it's difficult to understand that that will test for primary and secondary adrenal insufficiency. So you can understand in primary adrenal insufficiency, if you're giving ACTH, that's trying to stimulate your adrenal gland. But if your adrenal gland is not working, you're not going to get stimulated cortisol from there. So that makes sense. For secondary adrenal insufficiency, even giving ACTH, you would think if the problem is in your pituitary and then you give somebody ACTH, of course it's going to work because the adrenal gland is not diseased. But if you've had secondary adrenal insufficiency for long enough, your adrenal gland will atrophy to some extent. So it is a test that we use for both issues. The only caveat to that would be if you think somebody's had an acute insult on their pituitary gland. So if you think somebody's had an apoplexy, a sudden reduction in their ACTH production, you can pass the short synaxin test, but your baseline cortisol will be very low. So that's always something to bear in mind if your high index of suspicion is for a central cause. So that's how we would test it. In terms of next tests, we say you find somebody you failed, someone's got a failed short synaxin test, you want to know where the problem is. And you might have your suspicions based on their clinical context, but the next definitive test would be checking an ACTH because if it's primary adrenal insufficiency, your ACTH is going to be very high. If it's secondary, your ACTH is probably going to be low. Again, the caveat to all this is normally by this stage, this person's had a whole whack of steroid. And if your ACTH when you test it is high, there's no doubt you've got primary adrenal insufficiency. But if it's low, you could argue that you've had a big whack of steroid. It's suppress the ACTH drive and it might be falsely lowered as a result. It's hard to know, but we
we in the endocrine clinic we can test it again later on once they're in lower doses of steroids that would be the next test once you're kind of at that stage if you think if it's a high ACTH then you need to think about other testing for the rest of the adrenal glands so if it's primary adrenal insufficiency the rest of the cortex doesn't work so your renal aldosterone pathways don't work and you would want to check your renal aldosterone and that's very likely to be low and you'd have to think about replacement from that perspective and the other things that we tend to do are adrenal antibodies because autoimmune disease is the most likely you wouldn't normally image the adrenals if you think it's autoimmune disease but you might need to think about that if you think of an alternative cause and then from the other perspective if you think it's secondary and ECTH is low then you need to do the rest of the pituitary function and you might need to do some pituitary imaging at that stage. Okay, that makes a lot of sense. Thank you for going through that all with us. So once you've gone through the relevant investigations and have confirmed a diagnosis of adrenal insufficiency, how do you go about treating that? So again, this is situation dependent. If you've got a patient who's clapped out and has circulatory collapse, you want to treat and, you know, you see you've got an initial cortisol that's less than 40. You're going to treat this patient for acute adrenal crisis, adrenal insufficiency. And the stat treatment of choice is usually usually 100 milligrams of hydrocortisone given parenterally, ideally IV. And thereafter, if the person remains sick, you're unlikely to suddenly improve after one dose of steroids. You would give a 50 milligram dose every six hours for the next 24-48 hours, depending on how they are. So that's the kind of acute treatment. If you've got somebody who you've diagnosed with adrenal insufficiency and they're not acutely unwell, they've had some symptoms, then you can treat it orally. And again, our treatment of choice would be hydrocortisone. And we would give probably stress dose to start off with 20 milligrams in the morning 10 milligrams in the afternoon and then we that down to 10 and 5 as things settle and from a UK perspective certainly hydrocortisone is our mainstay of treatment and there are other bits and pieces with primary adrenal insufficiency the fluidocortisone replacement is the extra that you would have to add in and in secondary adrenal insufficiency depending on the rest of the pituitary function you might need to replace other hormones thyroid hormone sex hormone those would be the main ones. One thing to always remember is if you've got secondary hypothyroidism, i.e. you've got a low TSH and a low T4, you always want to check their cortisol levels before you replace with thyroxine. The worry is that if you replace thyroxine and actually they're adrenally insufficient, then your metabolism has slowed as a result of the hypothyroidism and the hypoadrenalism. And then if you suddenly give them back thyroxine, their metabolism speeds up and they don't have the cortisol to keep up with that and that can precipitate a crisis. So again, that's pretty small print, but that's just something if you're looking at patterns of blood results to think about. Yeah, absolutely. You touched on a few of the types of steroid replacement there. Are there any other types of steroid that you would use, dexamethasone, for example, or is it usually hydrocortisone that you would be treating? Yeah, that's a good question. So I suppose, again, you need to go back to physiology for this. We use hydrocortisone because that's probably the closest to the natural steroid cortisol. And you produce cortisol in a circadian rhythm, as I spoke about before, you peak in the morning and then the cortisol levels tend to decline a bit as the day goes on to the point where at night time your cortisol levels
levels are relatively low. And what we try to do with glucocorticoid replacement therapy is to recreate that to some extent. You want to take a bigger dose in the morning to give you a bit of get up and go. It's not uncommon for patients to be very tired in the morning because the rest of us already had our boost of cortisol often happens before you wake up and having a, a bit of a dip later on in the day. So we use hydrocortisone largely. That's usually the recommended and that's what most of the guidelines recommend. There are some places in Europe and sometimes in America who use cortisone, which is a precursor. It needs to be metabolized to get to cortisol, but you don't see that so much here. There are some occasions where you could use prednisolone, a synthetic corticoid, if, for example, somebody's not very good at compliance and that's a once a day because it's got longer half-life than hydrocortisone. And you would use a dose of between about three and five milligrams. But that's a one dose. It doesn't really recreate the circadian rhythm as much. And you do tend to have a few more in the way of side effects, steroid-related side effects with a prednisolone. And dexamethasone, a synthetic glucocorticoid, even less good at recreating your natural levels. It's got a longer half-life again, and it's much more associated with Cushingoid-related side effects. So the guidance we have from the endocrine society is that we don't tend to use that at all. That tends to be used in other treatments, but it's certainly not something we would use in replacement for physiological replacement of steroids, because the dosing that we use is trying to reflect what you would naturally produce in a day. Often people will think that you're on steroids, so you're going to get all the this Cushingoid side effects, but that's not the case. We're trying to recreate what you would naturally produce, and the amount you would naturally produce is probably between about 15 and 25 milligrams of hydrocortisone daily, and that's why we use our 10 and 5 as a standard dose. Occasionally people need an extra 5 somewhere in the afternoon, but that tends to be what we're trying to create. Okay. And once someone's been diagnosed, what is the usual follow-up regime and what would you be monitoring for in follow-up? So any patient with adrenal insufficiency should be seen in the endocrine clinic. And certainly if you find anybody who's not being followed up, we would want to know about that. In terms of follow-up, initially we see them so that we can explain their condition to them so that they understand the implications of it and particularly the sick day rules, which I think we'll talk about shortly. We want to make sure that they're on a decent dose of their steroid they might be a very active person and maybe 10 and 5 isn't quite right and 10 and 5 and 5 might be better for them. You want to also think about other conditions, I suppose. So for primary adrenal insufficiency, if it's an autoimmune disease, that often goes along with other autoimmune conditions. So things like celiac disease, type 1 diabetes, thyroid disease. So you are thinking about other autoimmune conditions as well. And the same would go, I suppose, with pituitary disease. And occasionally there are times where people patients will have short-lived adrenal insufficiency, say it's drug-induced, and we will want to retest and see whether their HPA axis has recovered. Mm -hmm. So we can repeat short-selecting tests when they're off their steroid therapy. So that's something that we would look at as well. And you mentioned your sick day rules there. That was something I was hoping to go into a little bit. What are the sick day rules? And if someone's unable to take their oral medications, what should you do in hospital? So this is probably the most important aspect of follow-up, certainly from the patient perspective and from a future medical interaction perspective. So the sick day rules are based on the fact that cortisol is a very important hormone 
not only when you're well, but also when you're unwell. And naturally, you know, we've talked about the diurnal variation of cortisol release. But if you're unwell, your cortisol levels are boosted naturally and you need cortisol to get over infections, inflammation, stresses. If you've got adrenal insufficiency, that reaction is not going to happen unless we do it because you are taking your own glucocorticoid replacement therapy and therefore you need to do that extra boost when you're not well. So the basis of it is that if somebody is unwell, they need more steroid. And our usual advice is that if somebody has, for example, a urinary tract infection or a chest infection, they're on antibiotics. They normally need a bit more steroids. So if they're on 10 and 5, we would say double the dose, 20 and 10, for example, and continue that until they're feeling better. There's no hard and fast rules of it must be five days, it must be two days, or it must be a week. It's just until they're feeling better, maybe until their antibiotics are finished, until they're feeling back to their usual self. So that is really important because the patients are the ones who are going to deal with minor illnesses at home. And the other important thing is to make sure that the GPs are aware of the patient's diagnosis. Now, when we see these patients in clinic, we put an alert on track. So you'll find that in the alert box just to identify them as adrenally insufficient and the importance of giving treatment if they're acutely unwell. We also tell the Scottish Ambulance Service and they put an alert on their records. So if they ever call and they're sick, they're prioritised. And we also ask the GPs to put that on their KISS summary so that they are aware if they're seeing them for another reason that they know to remember to tell them to double their steroids. So it's important from a clinician perspective, but it's also important for the patient's perspective. Then we come to conditions where the patients are unable to take oral tablets. So if you've got norovirus and you're vomiting, you can't take anything orally, you can't take any tablets. That is a medical emergency really. And these patients need to come to hospital for parenteral treatment with steroid. And we would organise education for these patients where they can give their own IM injection and they come up to the metabolic unit. We give them advice and training on how to use this along with a family member usually because the patient's usually too sick to do it. And the important thing that we always say is take the treatment if in doubt take it and always come to hospital afterwards. This is purely to make sure that there's no delay in getting steroid into them if they've not had anything. And I suppose that is the advice that we would give for patients coming in at the front door. If you know this patient's adrenally insufficient or they've been on high-dose steroids and for whatever reason haven't taken them for a few days, you've got to give them something. And again, that goes back to the treatment. It's 100 milligrams of IV hydrocortisone followed up by six hourly 50 milligrams until they're better. And we would always want to be involved in anyone coming into hospital with that sort of presenting problem. Absolutely. I think that's probably one of the big take-home messages there regarding how to manage how to manage yeah. that situation. Absolutely, the front door. I think that we also touched upon, of course, these patients are taking steroid replacement and one of the causes for adrenal sufficiency can touch upon medications people are taking. What should make us think about iatrogenic adrenal insufficiency? Well, exogenous steroids is one of the most common treatments in a whole host of different specialties. So the respiratory physicians use it all the time, rheumatology, gastroenterology. It's such a widely used drug that it's something to bear in mind for anyone who's taking steroids. We we would say that anyone taking 
more than 10 milligrams of prednisolone for 14 days, you would say that's long-term steroid therapy and you need to think about how you're going to stop it. And knowing the equivalent doses, I suppose, so that's about 50 milligrams of hydrocortisone, that's more than 2 milligrams of dexamethasone. If you've got somebody on high-dose steroid and either they stop it abruptly or they come in acutely unwell and they haven't been taking it, you've got to assume that their HPA access has been affected by that unless proven otherwise. We have a guidance that says once you're weaning down steroid levels, once you get to the equivalent of about four milligrams of prednisolone, you should do a morning cortisol before you have your steroid. And if that is less than 275, as our cutoff I'd mentioned before, we would suggest that they have a short snacking test before weaning any further. And certainly if they have failed it, then we would need to see them to put them on replacement. And that is always a bit of a tricky one because they might have weaned down their dose, but actually their condition flares up again and they're put back on high dose steroids, in which case we don't need to get too involved because they're already on the high dose steroid, but they do need to know sick day rules. And if somebody's taking 40 milligrams of prednisolone every day, you don't need to know sick day rules. You know, they're in a big dose of steroid day to day. It's just important they don't stop it abruptly. But if they get down to less than 10 milligrams of prednisolone or equivalent, that's when you do need to think about if they're sick, they need an increased dose. The equivalent of 10 milligrams is usually our suggestion for a stress dose from that perspective. So I think if you've got a patient who's on high-dose steroids, it's something to bear in mind. And I suppose the other big patient group would be the oncology patients who are on high doses of dexamethasone and very high doses of steroids. And if that's prolonged for any period of time, then that's something to bear in mind. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much. I feel like that's a really good overview, a really useful overview for all of us regarding adrenal insufficiency. If someone was wanting to look into it a bit further or do some more reading. Are there any guidelines that you'd recommend to listeners to do a bit more reading around the topic? Yes, we've got a lot of good guidance on the Society for Endocrinology website. There's really good patient information on there. There's a group down in England who've developed a new steroid card. So that's nothing I hadn't mentioned that we tend to give patients a card to keep on their person and I suppose having alert bracelets and things like that as well. They also have a very good guidance on managing acute adrenal insufficiency and there's also guidelines I suppose more specifically for primary adrenal insufficiency there's endocrine society guidelines that were published in the journal of clinical endocrinology and metabolism and that was Bornstein and et al I think it was published a few years ago but that's the basis that we kind of manage these patients with. Great that's really helpful you've gone through a lot of learning points for everyone I think what would be your main take-home messages for anyone listening? I think the main thing to remember is that adrenal insufficiency Efficiency is a really important condition. It can present quite non-specifically, but it is potentially a life-threatening condition. And I think if you have any suspicions about it, then you need to follow through on that and check some cortisols. If you really think somebody's acutely unwell and potentially is caused by adrenal insufficiency, just treat and look into it as you're able to after that. And I think the other thing that's important is that we need to know about these patients. We will always want to come and see a patient who's potentially got adrenal insufficiency or has proven adrenal insufficiency, we want to see these patients in hospital and we certainly want to follow them up in clinics. So if you ever find somebody who's not under follow-up, then we would want to know about it. There's a very useful take-home message I think definitely I'll be keeping in my mind if I ever see someone I'm worried about. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Carl. That's been a really interesting discussion. I've really enjoyed chatting with you and I'm sure people will enjoy listening to the conversation. So thank you. Not at all. Thanks for having me.